that's a tough act to follow for sure, being able to commission someone who's uh, a couple who served so faithfully here and uh, is now going to go answer the call that God's put on their lives. That's really, really exciting. And uh, happy Sunday, everybody. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. It's a national holiday, kind of, you know. I read that uh, 17 and a half million employees are expected to call in sick to work tomorrow with uh, Super Bowl fever. Uh, I will not be one of them. I, uh, I'm just not that into the Super Bowl this year. Once again, my Dallas Cowboys failed to make it to the Super Bowl, didn't even make it to the playoffs, barely showed up for the last week of the regular season, so... But I will say, if I, if I do watch the big game today, I'm going to have to root for the Kansas City Chiefs because you may or may not know this, but they started off life as the Dallas Texans. Yeah, back in 1960, there were two professional football teams in uh, the great city of Dallas, and apparently that was one too many. So the, after a couple of years, the, the Texans moved to Kansas City, rebranded themselves as the Chiefs. So they'll be my adopted team for the day. But, uh, but football, football teams, that's a good analogy for what we want to talk about today. Because just like football teams and, and football fans, as, as Christians, we tend to huddle up. We tend to surround ourselves with like-minded folks. We have our own books. We've got our own music, our own movies. We've got our own schools. Some Christians separate themselves to the extreme, even limiting their behavior. I mean, the Amish, they don't associate with anybody. They don't even associate with electricity, right? Some of the other denominations out there, they believe that they're the only true believers. Nobody else is actually going to make it to heaven. I suppose they're going to be pretty surprised when they finally die and see you know, what, what the story is there. But, but all of us, all Christians, we are, we're a bit separated from the rest of the world. Like, like football players who bond together as a team. They don't associate with the other teams. We sometimes act that way, kind of distancing ourselves from the world. And sometimes that's a good thing, for sure. I mean, the world's a crazy place, right? But sometimes we take that a little too far. And I want us to, to wrestle with that tension today. As we continue our series, Can You Relate?, We're talking about a really broad relationship this morning. We're talking about our relationship with the world, with everybody. I mean, that's a big topic to be sure. It almost feels like too big to talk about in one sermon, but the reality is it comes down to a very simple idea. Uh, It comes down to just a few letters, in fact. They're just three little words, just seven little letters, and this won't be a brand new idea for most of us, but I think we'll have a new understanding of this idea by the time we're finished. This is a a familiar idea. We're going to gain a little better understanding of it. So here's the three words, seven letters. You ready? In, not of. Uh, Like I said, you're probably familiar with this idea, a common idea, the idea of being in the world but not of the world. And just like football uniforms, we even have our own t-shirts, Christians do, that communicate this idea. In the world, not of the world. Maybe you've seen this logo, not of this world, right? It's such a common idea that we think we know all about it. We think we understand it. But I'm not quite so convinced. I think this phrase can be a good way for us to think about our relationship with the world but only if we understand what it really means. Most of the time, I think that we, we want it to mean one thing, but in fact, it means something very, very different. And we're going to discover what it means to us and our relationship with the world. So we're going to start our journey by looking at this idea from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus is actually the one who introduces this idea. So we're going to start 
with what he has to say. We're going to understand what it means for us. We're going to look at John 17 today, book of John chapter 17. And while you're finding your way to that, let me give us some context for this passage. It's always important. Uh, John chapters 13 through 18 chronicle Jesus last night with his disciples. These chapters 13 through 18, they detail Jesus' time from the Last Supper all the way up until he's arrested. And so it's, it's his last night before he's crucified. And Jesus has a lot of important things to share with his disciples. In John 13, he shares a lot of important things. They share a meal together. In fact, they share a, a Passover meal. And Jesus reinterprets, reimagines that meal into what we'll commemorate in just a little bit this morning, the Lord's Supper. But, but after they leave the supper, they're, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're crossing what's called the Kidron Valley. And they're, they're walking and Jesus is teaching them. And they walk through vineyards. And, and uh, Jesus teaches them in John 15 about the vine and the branches and, and what it means to bear fruit for God. He shares just wonderful, encouraging things. You can read those chapters uh, maybe later today. And, and somewhere along that journey, as Jesus is walking uh, towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be arrested, somewhere on that journey, he stops and he prays. And his prayer is John 17, where we'll be today. And Jesus prays for three different things, three different groups, if you will. In the first five verses, he prays for himself. And then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. He knows he's going to be leaving them soon. He wants to encourage and equip them. That's the, the second group that he prays for. And then starting at verse 20, Jesus prays for a third group. So he's just prayed for his disciples. And notice what he says in verse 20. I pray not only for these disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So Jesus prays for you and me. People who believe based on the testimony of the disciples, the testimony in this book right here. And let me just stop right there for just a moment. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know all the things that are going on in your life. But wherever you are, I want each of us to stop and be encouraged by the reality that, that Jesus, as he faced death as he faced his final hours on earth he was thinking about you and me jesus knew what was coming he knew that his work on earth was drawing to a close and he specifically prays for the impact that his life and his death would have on you and on me so wherever you find yourself this morning take some comfort in the simple fact that jesus heart is focused on you that is so very encouraging. There in his final hours, Jesus' heart and his mind is focused not on his own comfort, but on you and me. So these are the three groups that Jesus prays for. Himself, his disciples, you and me. And in this prayer, Jesus talks about our relationship with the world. As disciples, what kind of relationship with the world we have. He talks about this in, not of idea. So let's look at this prayer together. We're going to start in verse 6. Jesus is praying. He's talking to God. And this is what he says. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they're yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming in to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So Jesus has a whole lot to say here. Hopefully you picked up on some of his words about being in the world but not of the world. And Jesus seems to divide the world up, divide people up. That's our first clue to understanding this relationship with the world. There's some us versus them language here. So let's explore this passage and find out how Jesus divides people up. Notice in verse 6, right at the beginning of what we read, Jesus sets up this us versus them. Jesus tells the Father, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. So his, his followers, his disciples, are people who are, who are not of the world anymore. They're, they're out from the world. Two distinct groups, the world and followers. And, and this word that's translated from or out of, it's a small little word in Greek, a little preposition, ek. And it literally means from or, or out of, just as Jesus, as, uh, Jesus says here. It's very much the idea we started talking about. We wear these uniforms. We don't associate with people who wear those uniforms. We don't smoke. We don't chew. We don't go with girls that do, right? You know, we, we are not the same as they. So Jesus says he's taken a group of people, his people, out from the world. And this is really where Jesus introduces this idea out of the world in verse 6. But then he repeats it just a little bit later. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me because they're yours. So here again, Jesus separates us from them. And it's an even stronger separation because Jesus says he's praying for us and he's not praying for the world. That's awkward. There's a strong separation. And it kind of forces us to ask, okay, well, who is the world? I mean, we know generally, right? But but what exactly are we talking about? We we get the us, we're the believers in Jesus, us, but who is the them, the world? And when we see that word world, we tend to think it's very broad, like, like everybody. But in fact, John, who wrote the gospel, he utilizes that word. He uses, he uses it in a very specific sense. The word in Greek is, is cosmos, like, like the cosmos, the universe. But it also can carry a very specific meaning. World means the folks who are not us. One of my dictionaries describes the meaning very bluntly. It says this, this word, cosmos or world, it refers to the ungodly multitude. The whole mass of people alienated from God. So these are the, the characters in the story, so to speak. There's the us and there's the them. We're the believers and they're the ungodly multitude. And now we start to understand what Jesus is talking about, and we need to figure out, okay, well, what kind of relationship are we supposed to have with the world, this ungodly multitude? How do we relate to them? How do we interact? How do we fit together? And Jesus' prayer, he gives us some information about this. He talks about these three little words we mentioned, in, not of. He talks about being out from the world, and yet at the same time, he talks about being in the world. Look at the prayer again, verse 11. 
I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, he says. So, so Jesus gets to leave the world, go to the Father. We don't. When he says they, he means, he means us, his disciples. We're still in the world. And this idea, in, not of, it's really introduced here. And then a little bit later in the prayer, verse 14, Jesus says this, the world hated them, hated the disciples, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, so we're in the world, verse 11, but we're not of the world, verse 14. In, not of. There's this relationship kind of laid out. We're, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And here's this idea that gets tossed around, but what does it really mean? I mean, it seems pretty simple. It gets repeated so often. We think we've got a pretty good handle on it. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Like people say that, and we all kind of know what we're talking about. This is our team, and the ungodly multitude, that's the other team over there. And it seems to kind of communicate, it gives the drift, and we're in the world, unfortunately, but what we really need to do is we really need to make sure we're not of the world, right? Like it's hard to describe, but we all know it's not good. Being in, but not of, it's not a great place to be, it kind of stinks, well, we'd much rather be out of the world. And that's the impression that we get. And, and if we understand this idea, if we understand the relationship in this way, then our starting point is, is the in, the in part. We start with in the world. And frankly, we're kind of disgusted by that. I mean, have you seen this place, right? I, I was out of town recently, and I love to travel, generally speaking. I enjoy seeing new places in the world. Not so much this time, because I went to Iowa and I don't know if you've ever been to Iowa. If you're from Iowa, sorry. Uh, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so I was in Iowa, but I'm definitely not f- of Iowa, right? I mean, I was glad to come back to a real state with like vibrant, exciting things and trees, all that kind of stuff, right? Well, that's how we think of this idea. Like in the world, but not of the world. It starts with that in. Like if we have to be in, okay, we can suffer through that a bit, but we won't be of, Ugh. We'll constantly remind ourselves that we don't really belong in here, even though we have to be stuck here for a bit, right? In our Christian lives, this is how we tend to think of this idea. We're, we're stuck in this world, but there's a better world out there. And the older we get, the more uh, we get a little bit jealous of those who have gone before. The older we get, the more we've experienced, the more we've seen, and that means we've experienced and seen more pain and suffering. So we long even more for the next world, the life to come. We start to really dislike this world and we start to really long for another world. I mean, the world is bad. That's just reality. Jesus even says we need protection from this world in verse 11. There are real problems, challenges in this world. And when we talk about being in the world but not of the world, we think about it this way. We start with that unfortunate reality that we're stuck in the world. And if that's our starting point, if being stuck in the world is where we start, and it turns out we're in pretty good company. Lots of other folks have felt that sense of being stuck in, wishing they weren't. Uh, Lots of folks have felt that longing for what's next. In fact, in the Old Testament, we find Moses, Elijah, Jonah, all three prayed that they would just die. Better to be taken out of the world, they thought, than to suffer any longer for what appears to just be a lost cause. They were hardly folks who were of the world, but even in distancing themselves from the world, they still felt stuck. So stuck that it just wanted it all to end. Hopefully, 
You don't feel that way this morning, but we can relate on some level at least. Being in the world is a hard place. And if we start with that, if we start with in, where do we go from there? If we start with in, we, we, we start feeling stuck someplace that we don't belong. And then we take it upon ourselves to get out. That's our mission. Our mission becomes to get out. If you're in and you don't want to be in, your mission is to get out. That's why Moses, Elijah, Jonah, they all wished for death. It's the ultimate getting out. That getting out becomes our focus, our mission. So even though we're in the world, we certainly won't be of the world. We're going to work to get out as much as we can. So that the force of all our effort is moving away from the world. Just like the Amish or or the groups we mentioned at the beginning, we move out of the world. Maybe not to the extreme that the Amish have, but we move away from the world. We change our uniform. We huddle up with other folks who feel stuck here. We commit to not being of the world. And we think by isolating ourselves, we can somehow avoid contact with evil and with hostility with that ungodly multitude. Sometimes we think it'd be easier if we were out of the world, but it's just not true because wherever we go, we take our own sinful self with us. All the powers of darkness, they follow us because they're always with us. We can't avoid evil by trying to separate ourselves, trying to get out of the world. And the markers of this kind of attitude are are strong. We feel this way. It shows up in our attitude. It shows up in the way we talk. We talk about things like they're a lost cause. The issues just aren't even worth fighting anymore. We talk about people like they're a lost cause. We just give up trying to help, trying to reach, trying to impact people. We just give up. Or another way this shows up is our attempts to reclaim the, the good old days. Right? We, we want to make things look like they used to look back when we could kind of handle the world a little bit better. We try to impose a certain morality on that ungodly multitude to make it easier for those of us who are stuck in the world. Well, the problem with the good old days is that they're different for everybody. We romanticize the good old days, or at least our own version of them. We don't always agree on what the good old days really are, so we try to force our version of the good old days on other people, not to mention the fact that you really can't force a non-believer to follow God's way of living. If a person doesn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, they're incapable of obeying God's will. So forcing the good old days on non-believers is a totally fruitless effort. So if giving up on the world doesn't feel right, if trying to, to legislate or, or, or force morality isn't working, then what do we do? How do we relate to the world? I think that when we act that way, the us versus them, I think we really understand, misunderstand Jesus' prayer for his disciples. I mean, what if we've taken this idea, in, not of, and we've gotten it all backwards? When we start with in, we feel stuck. Our goal is to get out to separate ourselves, to dismiss, give up on people, force some moral code on them that they'll never live up to. But there's a better way. We start at the same place that Jesus himself starts. We've got it all backwards. Look at Jesus' prayer again. Look at verse 15. I am not praying that you take them out of the world. So Jesus makes it very clear getting out is not his goal for us. He specifically is not praying for that. God wants us to be very much in the world. He could remove us if he wanted, but Jesus very clearly says, no, you're here, you're in, and that is for a purpose. Listen to this quote from Bible scholar Robert Mounts, former president of Whitworth University. He says, God does not remove his servants from the world. It's the specific arena of their ministry. The message of redemption serves no purpose apart from those who need to hear it. 
It is less important that we hear the old, old story yet again than it is that we share it with those who have never heard. While a hostile world may not be the most receptive audience, they are the ones who need to hear the message. We have to be in the world because that's the mission that God has for us. Yes, we're not of the world, which is exactly the point. In a spiritual sense, we've been removed from the world. We're no longer part of the ungodly multitude, but we're still in the world. Yet since we've been spiritually separated from the world, we know how to help other people get out. And so we start in the place where Jesus himself starts, out. He's out. He's taken us out, spiritually speaking. He's separated us, taken us, uh, set us apart. And so we start with out. And that leads us on a mission right back in. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, his disciples. We start out of the world and we're sent into it. It's just the opposite of the way we think. We're not stuck here, we're sent here. We're not stuck in the world, but we can celebrate the reality that we are out. We celebrate it every single Sunday when we gather together. We're very truly out in the way that matters the most, spiritually. We've been saved from the world, all its ungodliness. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is that those who have embraced him, who have identified with him, are indeed not of the world. And now we're sent, sent into the world on mission for gospel advance through making disciples. Jesus set himself apart for us, and now he has set us apart for him. The Father sent him into the world, and now he sends us into the world. Since it is Super Bowl Sunday, here's another football analogy for you. We're the 12th man. Uh, Seahawks fans, you know all about the 12th man. You might not know that the idea of the 12th man comes from a true story. And like all good things, it starts in Texas. Back in 1922, Texas A&M University was losing their game badly to the top-ranked center college. They were stuck in the game. They had injury after injury to the point that their entire bench was empty. Every player they had was sent into the game. They were ready to just get out, fold. Suddenly, the coach looks up in the stands, and he saw one of the players from the practice team. He pulls him out of the stands, had him suit up and get ready to go in the game. With 11 players on the field, he was the 12th man, pulled out of the crowd, ready to be sent into the game. Well, at the risk of stretching the analogy too far, that's us. We start out. Jesus has pulled us out only to send us into the world on mission for him. We said before this idea of the world, this ungodly multitude, that word comes up over and over again in John's gospel. And of course, there's one very well-known place where it appears, John 3.16. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's such a well-known verse. It's a good verse for a football weekend, right? But we often overlook the verse right next to it, verse 17. God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God's relationship with the world is one of love. He loved the world so much, he sent his son, Jesus, in 
And then in the final hours of his life, Jesus prays God's will for the world. He prays that we would not be taken out of the world, but that we would continue that work of love. We would be sent in just as Jesus himself was sent. Sent not to condemn, not to give up on, not to force our will upon, but sent to save. Sent with the message of hope and love and redemption. After Jesus is resurrected, he tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. It's the great commission in John's gospel. That's our mission. We're not stuck here. We're sent here. On that same mission that Jesus himself began, bringing the message of God's love to a world that is in such desperate need of that truth and grace. When we look at our mission this way, there's one more part of Jesus' prayer that comes into sharp focus. Look at one more verse, John 17, verse 13. I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Jesus' prayer for the world is that they may have joy, the joy that comes from knowing him, knowing the love he has demonstrated to you and to me through his death and through his resurrection. And let's commit ourselves to that mission, sent into the world, showing love, modeling grace, reflecting the heart of Jesus to everyone in the world. Let's pray. Father God, we do want to uh, live with the same priorities that you yourself model for us through your son Jesus. We want to be not of the world, but sent into the world. Not uh, turned away, not isolating ourselves from the people who need that message of redemption, but instead being willing to go, being willing to go into that place and, and bring the hope and the love that can only come from you. We know so many people who are looking for love, who are looking for hope, who are looking for peace and not finding it because they're looking at something other than your son Jesus. And yet you, you have taken us spiritually out of the world. We know the pathway out and we want to be tour guides who guide people out of the world into the glorious relationship that we have with you. And I pray that you would motivate us today to go and do the same as your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.